Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. The Germans are a good people. On the whole, the best people perhaps in the world. An amiable, unselfish, kindly people. I'm positive that the vast majority of them go to heaven. Indeed, comparing them with the other Christian nations of the earth, one is forced to the conclusion that heaven will be chiefly of German manufacture. Now that was the comic writer Jerome K. Jerome in his book Three Men on a Bummel, published in 1900. And I'll try to remember those words when, in this week's titanic footballing clash between our two great nations, the last German penalty screams into the net and it is heartbreak for England yet again. Tom, Tom Holland, it is just as well, isn't it, that the Germans don't play cricket? Imagine that. Well, they actually, Dominic, they do. and really? Yeah, they do. Probably the most humiliating moment um, in last year's lamentable performance um, on the COVID front um, in, uh, in England was when... Um, uh, Germans came out of lockdown before we did. Uh, and as a result, they were playing cricket when it was banned in England. So I think that's the only time probably in history that cricket's been legal in Germany and banned in England. And that's that, a bad for moment, me, isn't it? It was a terrible moment. I still haven't read really... the end of days. Yeah, that's what it felt like. I mean, that's when it, that, that's when it really hit me. Have we ever, obviously we've, we've played Germany multiple times in, in, in different arenas. Uh, have we ever played them at cricket? I don't think we have, but it's obviously a matter of time. Yeah, they're, they're clearly that plotting moment. their path to greatness. <laughs> Imagine that moment when they find, when they win at Lords or something. I know, I know, <laughs> on penalties. I'm sure they'll find a way to do it. Yeah, in a super over. <laughs> That's exactly what it will be. That's exactly what it will be. All of which I'm aware is will be total gibberish, perhaps to um, <laughs> to people who have no interest in football or cricket or anything. But essentially, Dominic, as you say, um, the reason for this, the theme of this podcast, which is Anglo-German relations, is that yet again, England have been drawn against Germany in a, a huge international tournament. Um, yeah. And we know how it's going to end. But <laughs> before England lose, let's 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 look at the whole theme of Anglo-German relations, which, of course, um, is is founded if you follow the opinion of the terraces uh, on the idea that um, England have won two world wars and one World Cup, ignoring the fact how many World Cups have the Germans won? Four. four? Yeah. Before four. we won in nineteen sixty six, one of the tabloids, I think it was the Mirror, I might be wrong, said um, if England lose on Saturday, we should remember that they may have beaten us once at our national sport, but we've beaten them twice at theirs, um, <laughs> which is the sort of commentary that now is frowned upon. Yes. Um, but in the 1960s was regarded as very jolly badinage. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, we, we do tend to um, see Anglo-German relations through the prism of the two world wars. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's, you know, we've just recorded a two-part episode episode with um, Ian Kershaw and Hitler. So that obviously does very much kind of dominate perspective. But I think it it clouds the degree to which actually over the course of the centuries and indeed the millennia, relations between the English and the Germans have been closer. Well, there's an argument, isn't there, that the English are the Germans? I mean, some people, Victorians kind of thought that, didn't they? Well, in a sense, Bede did as well. I mean, it starts with Bede who is writing um, in Anglian Northumbria, uh, and he writes his history of the English church. And he says that the Angles, the Saxons, the Jutes um, are migrants who have come from Germany across the North Sea to settle um, what will become England. Um, and that sense of kinship, whether it's true or not, whether it's a, a, a myth or whether it's rooted in historical fact, um, is certainly one that the Angles and the Saxons themselves believed. Um, yeah. They had a, a, a very strong sense of kinship, um, and that's why the great um, the great apostle of the Germans, the man who um, is credited by the Germans themselves converting them to Christianity, uh, is a man from Devon, uh, Saint Boniface. That's interesting. So, yeah, so he was yeah. a man. He was the sort of man who would be drawn into one of those abstruse arguments about scones with the Cornish. You know. I, I imagine that's I imagine that's that. why he yeah. left. I imagine that's why he left he left Wessex behind and went off yeah. to uh, to convert the, uh, the the Saxons, of course, who were who were pagan at the time. And 
it, it's interesting because what the reason that the um the pope wants to convert the english why he sends the missionaries with you know augustine to canterbury is because he sees britain as having originally been part of the roman empire and therefore yeah. because they were romans therefore they should probably be christian he's not really interested in people beyond the limits of what had been the roman empire but the angles and the saxons aren't bound by that they feel a strong sense of kinship with their pagan cousins across the waters and so that's why they cross the sea and they go and they um they go into the kind of the dank dripping forests of saxony <laughs> yeah. to, to, to tremendous effect and um boniface ends up being um martyred in frisia and his body is then taken to fulda um, where it, it becomes a massive centre of pilgrimage. And so he, to this day, he's the patron saint, I think, of Europe, of Germany, and of Devon, which is is quite a record. That is so, a record, the big three. So I think, yeah, absolutely. So I think that that um, as England and and, um, and Germany take the field at Wembley, um, we, we should keep St. Boniface in mind. Because <laughs> he's something that we all share in common. But isn't the weird thing, though, Tom, I was, I was thinking about this, that um, for much of our medieval history, I mean, for one thing, Germany isn't Germany. Right. I mean, Germany is, is the empire. I mean, it's this patchwork of territories as it remains until the 19th century. But also England is so sort of orientated towards France that yeah. Germany doesn't really seem to feature as much as, you know, you can sort of read a book about England in the Middle Ages and Germany seems, apart from sort of Hanseatic traders or something, Germany barely seems to feature at all. It's all about France, isn't it? Yeah. And, 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 and in terms of kind of national rivalries, obviously I, England's traditional enemy is France. Yes, and I suppose but it's interesting not... that, that doesn't translate into the football. No, but partly because the French weren't very good at football until relatively recently. But they are now, aren't they? They're going to win. They are good, but I don't think football has. I mean, this is a whole different subject. But I don't think football is as deeply embedded in French culture as it is in some of its neighbours' culture. I mean, they care about cycling and stuff. But, but I mean, it's 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 interesting that uh, "Ich dien, I serve," which is the the motto of the Prince of Wales. Yes, supposedly comes because um john the blind king of bohemia which of course is czech republic now but yeah. is part of the german empire um he he fought at the battle of cressy um and when it became obvious that the uh, the, the english were winning he demanded to be led into the heart of the melee you know he was blind and cut down but it was a kind of heroic end and hold on and, whose side was he on he was fighting with the french he was fighting oh, with the french and um uh edward the black prince you know, he won his spurs at Cressy. He's supposed yeah. to have taken this uh, this motto as his own. Um, I, 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 like all brilliant stories, I think it's not true. <laughs> but, <laughs> so should never stop. That's never stopped us before. No, exactly. But you're right. I mean, that's basically uh, in in terms of relations between Germany and England in the High Middle Ages. That's about it for me. I mean, it's sort of uh, yeah. It's, I suppose it says something about um, yeah the, the sort of dearth of stuff that I that I did some had to do some online digging. What about Richard of Cornwall? So I very vaguely knew about this, but but we've talked know, about him. Um, so he we talked in, about him in King Arthur. Well, he's so hold it. He's King John's son, is that right? And he's elected yeah. king of the king of Germany. Now, this is one of the strange things about German <laughs> history in the Middle Ages that the king of Germany was called King of the Romans. Yes, it's all <laughs> incredibly confusing. Yeah, so he was elected King of the Romans, uh, which meant he was the ruler of Germany. In six in twelve fifty six, he was crowned in Aachen, in this sort of place where Charlemagne had been had been crowned. Um, but he only went to Germany four times, so he's like a sort of reverse, yeah, um, Richard the Lionheart or something. Yeah, as in he he, he instead <laughs> well, of his... going on crusade, he just spends all. He died in Hertfordshire, very disappointingly for the King of the Romans, who was also the King of Germany. But he also built Tintagel. Did he? Yes, we did talk about this. Yes, so, so we so we talked about him. So this was his sort of, I mean, I mean, if I was German, I wouldn't be best pleased with this kind of conduct. Well, the, the whole thing about kind of electors and palatinates coming from, yeah. from the palace at, at Aachen and palatinate obviously has echo of Palatine in Rome. There is, there is a kind of the, 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 um, the, the, the way in which basically the guy who rules the patchwork of kingdoms and territories and bishoprics in what becomes Germany, um, it, it, he, he's the emperor of the Romans. And and that's the incredible confusion of it, and the mess up of it. Um, whereas England, obviously, is you know the, the national history is much simpler because the the borders are fairly coherent, and, and yeah. there's a kind of consistent national story that you can tell there. Um, and I think I guess you, you mentioned the Hanseatic League. I mean, that actually is quite significant because that, that's a, a kind of an well, it's a kind of proto uh, common market, isn't it? Of, of yeah 
of traders and and cities um and they uh, they they're always forcing unequal trade deals <laughs> on England yeah i think you care a lot about the hands actually don't you if you live in ipswich or something um yeah or lubeck yes or well, obviously in lubeck yeah places with stepped gabled roofs very handsome exactly and marzipan um, yeah yeah, this is this is profound historical punditry, Tom. Um, okay, well, let's but, okay, but, well, let's but move, on that theme, on yeah. that theme, um, the Reformation, of course. Well, um, I was about but, to say this is the way it all kicks off, really, isn't it? I mean, it, it, it does kind of. I mean, obviously, without Luther, there is no Reformation, and therefore there is no Reformation in England. So clearly, that 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 generates a, a lot of communion, as it were. Yeah, but it's telling that that England's form of Protestantism is not Lutheran. So unlike no, yes, unlike yeah. the Protestantism in, say, Scandinavia, which is Lutheran, England's isn't. England's is essentially Calvinist, and Calvin, of course, is French. Oh, so yeah, we've the, the old Francophilia rearing its head. Yeah, again. well, yet, yet again, you see the way in which the, the the continental power that is has the greatest influence on us is is France, or, invariably yeah. France. So even in the Reformation, because Germany is still divided, I suppose. I'll tell you a good fact: uh, in everybody in their wallet, if they look in their wallets, those people who still have kind of cash on your pound coin, you have a, two letters, which is a kind of little um, emblem of Anglo-German antagonism, because it's the FD Fide Defensor, which was awarded to Henry VIII, wasn't it? After he wrote his book, the first book published by an English monarch, in which he attacked Martin Luther. Yes. Um, so this is uh, Henry coming out against Luther. You know what Luther said about Henry after Henry VIII wrote that? Uh, remind me. He said he was a pig, an ass, a dunghill, the spawn of an adder, a basilisk, a lying buffoon, and a mad fool with a frothy mouth. So I'll, I'll put him down as undecided then. Yeah, I've had, I've had, I've had reviews <laughs> like that. To be fair, <laughs> but but even I mean, even when Henry um, chucked the Pope out, Luther still was was still incredibly suspicious of him. Um, and accused him essentially of trying to make himself God. Yeah, which I think well, he wasn't an, entirely wrong. Not, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a not unfair criticism. Um, but at that stage, the interesting thing is, Tom, that there doesn't seem to be a sense in England of sort of Germanness. I guess of 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 a German. Is there? I mean, Germany is still very divided. Obviously, Henry then goes on to marry the Anne of Cleves, who's from what is effectively, I guess, the sort of Dutch German borderlands. Um, but there's no sort of sense of the Germans being having a, a a distinct identity and a kind of you know a, temp- a national temperament and all those things that we would associate with the French in this period. I think I think there's a sense that the Germans are drunkards, which I think right. coming from the English is a bit rich. Yeah, <laughs> but I think I agree. I mean, the, the, I I don't think that there is a kind of strong sense of of you're right about that. And I think, but I think that changes in the 17th century. Why? Because of the Thirty Years' War, or because of? I think yes. Well, but but also because um, James the First's daughter Elizabeth, who is of course um, Charles First's sister, yeah, mar- marries into um, uh, German dynastic politics, and therefore England becomes enmeshed both in in the dynastic politics of it, but also in the religious divide. Yeah. And there's a sense in which um, in the 17th century, um, kind of Puritan opinion in England is following the fortunes of Protestants in, in, in the German Empire, perhaps in the way that the left now follow the, the fortunes of, say, the Palestinians. There's this kind yeah. of passionate, committed engagement with what is going on in the, in the German Empire. And it's, it, it's much more intense. And in a sense, I mean, it's, it's, it's crucially important for England in all kinds of ways, because it feeds into the civil war, and then in the long run, it feeds into the um, the dynastic um, transformation that happens with the expulsion of James II, yeah, and the, the arrival of the Hanoverians. I love all that, Tom. I remember doing it at school. This is a sort of slightly pitiful memory, but um, at school uh, we were talking about you know James I and his battles with Parliament, and our teacher said, you know, what you now have to bear in mind is the reaction to the Battle of White Mountain. At the beginning of the, the yes. Thirty Years' War, and that was one of the first moments studying history that I really appreciated how events in one sphere could have a massive political impact on events yes. that appear to be in an, 
so in other words, people were following, exactly as you say, people, politicians and people interested in politics were following events in Germany with the same passion that they followed, say, the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. And they saw it as a sort of reflection of English politics or, or English politics as a reflection of it. Yes, because um, Elizabeth marries Frederick um, who is the elector palatine of the Rhine, which is one of those kind of classic <laughs> titles that they very much have in Germany at this, this period. And he inevitably gets elected, um, king of Bohemia. And he, he, it's not a great success because he's Protestant and the Catholic powers are not keen on having a Protestant king in Prague. And so he's derisively called the winter king because yeah. he basically rules for, for the span of a winter. And um, yes, and he so, so he he loses the Battle of the White Mountain in uh, 1620, I think it is. Yeah, it's something like that, isn't it? And um, and he's forced to flee, and he nicks the the Bohemian crown jewels and and scrams him and his um his 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 wife and his children, and they end up in the Dutch Republic, which is the you know like England is one of the the, the great power centres of of Protestantism, and there is huge huge sympathy for them. Um, and, and people in England are kind of raising money for them and, and hoping that he will get his, his fortunes restored. But it kind of plays out in a, in a, in an interesting way for Puritan opinion because, um, Frederick and Elizabeth's son, third son is Rupert. Yeah. I hope comes to be known as, of course, Rupert of the Rhine because he's the son of the Elector Palatine of the Rhine. But as, as Charles I's nephew, He's the great dashing exemplar of the Cavalier in the Civil yes. Wars. He's the guy who's rushing around kind of burning down Birmingham and leading the attack at Marston Moor. He's a great character, Tom. I mean, he is yeah, one of he's the great characters in all Anglo-German history, indeed in all English history. I think the great, one of the, there's so many things to talk about with Prince Rupert. So one of them is he's, he's famous as this great dashing commander, but he basically never wins a, an important battle. <laughs> no. so he loses all his no. battles. But he loses with such dash. But he does with the dash, right? The dash. He's come from <laughs> Germany. So the 30 years war is going on. And, and one thing that I think English sort of people, even if they're quite interested in history, never really appreciates just how unbelievably ghastly and apocalyptic the 30 years war is so germany loses i don't know a quarter of its population or something some colossal yeah there, there was a poll i think taken five years after the second world war where germans were asked to, to, to vote on on the worst thing that had happened in german history this is five years after the second world war and they voted for the 30 years war yeah i mean it's absolutely it was, sort of engraved in german in the german historical imagination isn't it and in england there's i mean people obviously followed it as we said at the time but now it's kind of forgotten just seen as utterly impenetrable which it which it kind of is but rupert was used to the atrocities and the sort of terrible behavior of the 30 years war so and he brought some of that to england and got a very bad reputation with the parliamentarians because as you say he went around burning towns and massacring people and stuff because he thought this was completely reasonable I mean, I hope the Germans don't bring this to cricket. If this, if you know, in similar, It'd be terrible if they did. Well, he's he's let, let's let's he's Anglo he's Anglo German, but 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 his his you're right. His ethos is essentially you know he's essentially German, and and so I would say that he's the first great German to impact on the English yeah. national consciousness, and he's supposed to have had it. His dog boy. We've, I mean, dogs. Dogs have been a feature of this podcast in <laughs> yes. recent weeks. So I think it would be yes. wrong not to mention <laughs> yes. his dog, who was supposed to as a white poodle. Yes. Um, supposed to be, supposed by his Puritan enemies to have been his witch's familiar and die, dies at, dies at Marston Moor, I think. He could find treasure. He could foretell the future and he could catch bullets in his mouth. Yes. Which and then, a, and then, a, a commander's dog is an immense skill, I would say. But then he dies at Marston Moor and from that point on, Prince Rupert's lost his superpower and yeah. everything goes wrong. I was going to say he sticks around. So Prince Rupert is around for another, he's an admiral. He becomes, he becomes, he's the third person to join the Royal Society, the Great Scientific Society. And he invents things, he invents kinds of guns and grenades yeah, and gunpowder. Yeah, he's a remarkable and, man. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's Prince Philip, basically. And he, he, sponsor, and he sponsors um, uh, colonial expansion. So there are loads of places in Canada called Rupert after him. Is that so? So he's, so he's a very oh, interesting man. One very, for the Canadian listeners there. Yes, absolutely. We want to get Canada in as well. Um, um, but, so, so, but his, but really, the, I mean, he, he's, he's a fascinating figure and perhaps, I mean, it'd be good to do a whole episode on him, to yeah, be honest. Um, but probably a more important figure for the future of Anglo-German relations is his sister, Sophia. So that's the electress of Hanover or the electress of Hanover's wife or mother or yes. whatever. And so what, what, what happens after the, the, you have the restoration, Charles II comes back, 
uh, he was a kind of crypto Catholic. Um, his brother, James II, who succeeds Charles II, is an open Catholic. And that then precipitates a Protestant meltdown. And so you have the Glorious Revolution of 1688. William III comes from Holland, uh, fr- from, from the Netherlands. Yeah. Um, with his wife, Mary. Um, Mary's sister Anne then follows, but neither of them have children. And so Britain faces the problem of, of, of what king do we get? Where do we get a Protestant monarchy? And so they turn to Sophia, whose, whose son, George, who is the elector of Hanover, comes over and becomes George I. Yeah, this is absolutely seismic moment, isn't it? I mean, So the 18th century, the Hanoverian age, uh, the relations of Britain and Germany are, are completely intertwined. And one thing that surprises me about this is that um, if we always think of the Georges as terribly stolid, and, and in many ways they were the early Georges. But when George I pitches up, there are colossal riots all across England. So on his coronation day, 20th of October, 1714, um, you mentioned Birmingham. So clearly Birmingham has rebuilt itself after being attacked by Prince Rupert, but perhaps has not forgiven um, the Germans for this behaviour because there's these massive riots in Birmingham. People are going around shouting, kill the old rogue, kill them all, down with the roundheads. Now, the roundheads, they're obviously not talking about Germans with sort of German. That's, that's, that's the squareheads, isn't it? The First World War um, mockery of the Germans. But they're talking... That, George the First has been championed by the Whigs, by the, the sort of inheritors of the of the revolution of the mid seventeenth century, by the sort of descendants of the parliamentarians, I suppose. And there's these colossal and George. They they actually don't really manage to clamp down on it. So they don't. The, a lot of people don't get punished because the riots are so widespread. But George just sort of ignores them in his stolid Teutonic way. And you know what, George? Something that very, greatly surprised me. He was a big admirer of Double Entendres. Was he? Like, yeah, but he not liked, but not in English, obviously, because he didn't speak no, in German. It, well, I think this is this is contested actually. Some people say he actually spoke a bit more English than was previously thought. But he did like bawdy humour. He was a very and and there was a lot of talk that he was sort of bringing over all these German mistresses and things. So I think maybe he's a sort of German Sid James. Maybe that's the way. To, <laughs> <laughs> to is that your Sid James laugh? <laughs> <laughs> but I like. I, <laughs> I like um, I like uh, down with the roundheads as a chant. Will you? Yeah, um, I wouldn't chant that because I'm a roundhead. But um... I can imagine you on the terraces shouting that at the German team. <laughs> yeah, of yeah, definitely. It's historically informed chant. Yeah, and he of course brings over Handel, the great, you know, the the sort of the great the ty- slaver. The well, <laughs> yes, the Titanic figure of English music, George Frederick Handel, Handel, and these sort of great moments of English 18th century music are, of course, German. So that sort of kickstarts a romance. And it's George, to- George II, isn't he? He stands, he he listens to um, to the Messiah, and he hears the Alleluia chorus, and he's so struck by it that he stands up and applauds. That's a nice story. Yeah, and I think that that, that that's it's now the tradition when you go to the Messiah that you stand up. Really. The Alleluia Chorus, apparently. You don't want to get that wrong, do you? You don't want to stand no, applauding no. no one else. Yeah, but if, but if you're the king, you can do that. And also, <laughs> of course, George II, the other great famous thing about George II is that um, he's the last British monarch to lead an army. In Germany, at the Battle of Dettingen, isn't it? Yes, yes. where he almost loses. I mean, he's, he's a terrible general. Well, well, that's obviously a theme because that's that must be something. There must be something Germanic in that because that's Prince Rupert as well. But um, that's an interesting story in itself. So that obviously often we did the Seven Years' War and podcast didn't we and one thing that's often lost from all of this sort of story of 18th century britain as it becomes and britain's expansion um is that we are involved in europe the whole time and for the hanoverian kings the protection of hanover and their involvement in german affairs was immensely important to them so all this time in a way that we've now forgotten britain was enmeshed in the sort of incredibly arcane politics of the Germanic world. And George II is is very, very effective at ensuring that British arms and, and money is used to defend his territories in Germany. Yes. I mean, actually, this is something that some scholars, so there's a guy called Brendan Sims who's written a massive, colossal book about this, arguing that for all that we're now fixated with empire and with colonial expansion, that actually this was merely a means to an end and that what mattered to the monarch and most of the elite was exactly as you say, the balance of power within Central Europe. And all the other stuff, the acquiring of colonies and the ships and w- was a sort of, was was a, just a weapon in this war, largely against the French for control yeah. of the sort of continent. And so we, t- we talked about that in the, in the Seven Years' War podcast, that, that 
Britain and Prussia kind of become natural allies. Um, yes. And that is obviously something that then carries through into the Napoleonic era. Yeah, that, exactly. England and Pr- the usual alliance becomes Britain and Prussia, doesn't it? And I think it's yeah. at that point, certainly by the 19th century, that this idea of the ancestral you know, friendship, that there's sort of ties of kinship. I mean, that's obviously something... Well, it's, it's, it's embodied in um, Wellington and Blücher yes. kind of meeting each other amid the carnage of Waterloo. Um, and that that is the kind of foundational image for the way that the Germans and the, and, and, and the British see each other, certainly in the first years of the, of the 19th century. Although, I, I mean, what... what so Blücher and, and, and Frederick the Great and um, the idea of, of Prussian arms is obviously something that, that we might back project because we know where it's, it's going to lead. But um, away from Prussia, you've still got all these kind of electorates and palatinates yeah. and bishoprics and things. Um, and then Napoleon gets rid of them. Um, and then you've coming out of coming out of the Napoleonic era you've got the problem of what 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 should germany be yeah and well at that point you've got two things i think tom one you've you've got prussia expanding so yeah. germany is going to become which has never really been a, a, a sort of a, a particularly potent political concept is going to become a political concept in the 19th century but also you have the decline of france and i think the british relationship with germany changes once france starts to decline because I think- we, our friendship was spaced so tightly on a shared loathing of the french but i think i think there's another dimension to to this kind of what should germany be that that comes out of the the french revolution and the the napoleonic wars which which is that it it generates a kind of mood of profound philosophical introspection yeah and so the, the the image of the germans in england at this time is not of kind of militarists but of almost the precise opposite kind of dreamers and thinkers yeah. whose head are lost in the cloud it's the sort of goethe and, and casper david friedrich paintings yeah, so, of people looking at valleys and, and feeling yes, very miserable on mountains and gazing yeah. at mist and things and and so you've got someone like samuel taylor coleridge the great poet um you know with william wordsworth writing the lyrical ballads um one of the great romantic figures who goes to germany and learns german and then basically comes back and regurgitates all this idealist philosophy that he's picked up uh, and that's hugely, hugely influential on how the British see the Germans. So, yeah. um, I, I, I think, uh, it, you know, we haven't had 45 minutes, but we, it's the whistle should blow and we should go and have a, have a, a brief interval. But I think it's a good point to leave it. A very, a very happy point. Yeah. Seeing that, seeing the Germans as, as ineffectual, incompetent dreamers who are very good at philosophy. So this podcast is going to turn out like uh, Sven Joran Eriksson's verdict on English performances. First half good. Second half, not so good. (laughs) I'll see you after the break. Welcome back to The Rest is History uh, with me, Dominic Samrook, and Tom Holland. And we are talking England and Germany, or Britain and Germany, I suppose, since we're into the 19th century. And Tom, I think an absolutely central figure in all this is Prince Albert, who we haven't discussed yet. Yes, who, of course, ends up marrying um, Queen Victoria. And again, we were talking before the uh, before the break that the image of Germany is is um, they're ineffectual. They're basically not very rich. Um, and that's that's very much the kind of opinion on Prince Albert, isn't it? He's it, he's not kind of seen. He's seen as punching above his weight, I think. He is marrying he, Queen he Victoria. Is, he is the paradigmatic example of the consort who arrives and everybody despises him. And they say, who is this jumped up? foreigner and why should we listen to him so a lot of people say Saxe coburg which is where he's from is smaller than an english county and and of course what makes this sort of worse is uh, two things one that queen victoria is utterly devoted to him you know if you read her sort of diary entries you know oh what a night i spent in his arms and all this kind of business but also prince albert is prince albert is in many ways an immensely admirable man but he's also i imagine incredibly annoying because he arrives <laughs> he arrives from germany and you can imagine him speaking you know perfect german accented english and he sort of says your child labor is very unacceptable you know you should clean up this you should do that you should start have a great exhibition you should all this you know he's, he's got all these all imp- great dominic that's all great stuff yeah but he's got all these improving no, ideas you know, 
You're the voice of Flashman. I mean, that's the worst thing, you see, that he's got all these brilliant, very good ideas, very admirable ideas. And um, coming from this guy who, from Saxe-Goberg, a lot of people sort of shake their heads grumpily. Um, but over time, I think he wins people over because his impressive modernizing yeah. ideas, you can't argue with them. I mean, the child labor is hard to defend. The, but also the Great Exhibition, yes. which is essentially his his scheme, is a great success. It and um, it ends up funding... Uh, you know, all the museums, Victoria and Albert Museum, most obviously, but others as well in South Kensington. Uh, and that's a permanent memorial to him. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's memorials. You know, it's got that kind of massive gold statue of him surrounded absolutely. by emblems of the empire, which I'm amazed hasn't been cancelled yet. And, but, and when I mean, he died, it's... I mean, people put up memorials all over the country. There's a memorial in um, Wolverhampton. Tommy will be pleased there. Yeah, Prince Albert on a horse in the middle of Wolverhampton. So it's good to see the Midlands <laughs> getting reconciled at last to Germany. Yes, after, after what Prince of, Rupert. And, yeah, after Prince Rupert and after the riots in uh, Birmingham yeah. and George the First, the Midlands finally, um, exactly discovered its inner Teuton. But also the Christmas tree. The Christmas tree is um, Albert's yeah. lasting legacy because I think there have been Christmas trees before, but he really popularizes the idea of the Christmas tree. So we owe him so much, Tom. So it's all good looking, good, isn't it? For Anglo-German relations, it's great, and actually, right up to 1870, um, I, I, a little bit beyond that, but I think 1870 is the key turning point because that, of course, is the moment when Bismarck basically. We, I mean, we talked about this with Katia Hoyer in our Second Reich podcast. She manoeuvres the French. Sorry, she Bismarck. Katia, not Katia, not Katia. Katia doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> She's got she's got a Bismarckian side to her, I think. <laughs> anyway, Bismarck maneuvers the French um, into war. The Prussians wipe the floor with the French, and it's a, and it's then that they create the Second Empire. They create Germany. The thing I think from 1870 onwards, you can see this growing disquiet. In Britain. But at, at think, the time, there's quite a lot of enthusiasm for Germany's victory, isn't oh, there? There's there is, all this, of, those kind of press reports. We are glad to see sober, industrious, moral Germany triumph over. Yeah. Catholic evil. Vain, glorious yes. cockerels of France. <laughs> yeah. But I think then, sort of about a week later, they, it's like the hangover. They kind of wake up yeah. and think, oh, oh God. They're going to be beating us at football soon. Yes. And I also it's at this moment that once Germany is unified, the tremendous engines of German capitalism really start to roar. And so by the end of the 19th century, German manufacturing has caught up with and it is indeed is overtaking. British manufacturing. And then you get this moment, these moments which we talked about before of, um, you know, this sort of slightly paranoid fantasies. I mean, you could argue they don't turn out to be so paranoid after all, that the Germans are about to invade, that the yes, Germans have overtaken Through the Dorking us. Gap. Yes, exactly. They, yeah. We talked about the, um, the invasion of 1910 and all these kinds of... But I think it's more than that as well. I mean, it's not just military, is it? Or even industrial. It's also the sense that the Germans are more civilised. Yes. That, they, yes. that they, they are kind of beating us... Uh, pretty much in every cultural field. Yeah, their laboratories, their universities, exactly. Their universities yes. set the template. Um, and I think it's the for, for the first time, the English feel an inferiority complex. And so they respond in the obvious way by building huge, massive, phallic warships. Yeah. Well, of course, there's the dreadnought, dreadnought. race. There's the dreadnought yeah. race before the... I mean, I think the... Um, the sort of obsession with national virility is is shared on both sides. So, I mean, we talked, obviously, the Kaiser and his boating shoes has, yes. has been... A- yes, at Cowes, for the third time I get to mention them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he gets yeah. laughed at. So that's one thing where we do uphold is, is that we have proper yachting etiquette. And the, the Kaiser is la- lamentably gauche at such yeah. issues. So there, at least, Britannia rules the wave. You, you have fought yourself on this, don't you? I mean, that <laughs> terrible. Yes, didn't me. You sympathise with the Kaiser. I mean, you're quite similar people in, in many ways. I think. And, um, <laughs> well, yeah. Well, let's not pursue that analogy. Um, but um, yes, before the First World War, I think there were two things going on. One is the anxiety, and one is the sort of the the, the fear that of the pompous strutting Kaiser and his dreadnoughts and Germany trying to get its own colonies and and German manufacturers overtaking our own. But there also is this this continuing fascination with Germany. So there's a guy called Haldane. Lord Haldane, who is yeah. the guy who builds up the British army before the First World War. And Haldane is a Germanophile, as many people were. And Haldane has spent lots of time in Germany. And actually, he then gets drummed out of office in the First World War because people say, oh, he's been spending all his summers in Germany. He's got all these German friends and he reads German books. And as a lot of intellectuals did in the Edwardian period. Absolutely. I mean, but, but, because, well, but even before that, you think of George Eliot and her crisis of faith. Because um, the sense that theologians in Germany are radically rewriting the basis for our understanding of, of 
Christian history. Um, yeah. Absolutely massive impact. And, and, and that is across, you know, pretty much every academic discipline. It's Germany who's blazing the path. And I think that 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 does generate a kind of mixture of kind of fascination, inferiority, all of which obviously feeds into the swirl of of um, a, a opinion that helps push Britain into yeah. war against Germany in 1914. And then I think also slightly, I think slightly feeds some of the propaganda during the war. So obviously there's lots of the sort of stuff about um, the Germans have raped Belgium. They are, you know, crucifying Canadian soldiers, crucifying people. They are raping nuns. They are bayonetting babies and stuff. A lot of which, you know, there's a grain of truth in that, as in the Germans do proceed with great sort of ferocity through Belgium. I thought that they, they, uh, the, the revisionism of the revisionism was that actually there were terrible atrocities in Belgium. Um, I think there are atrocities, but I don't think they're quite the atrocities that are. So the Germans do shoot civilians. They do burn the great library in Louvain. Um, they do behave very ferociously as an occupying force. I mean, actually, the comparison, Tom, is Cromwell in Ireland. It's exactly yeah. from the same motive. So the Germans, when they set off into Belgium and the Belgians resist, the Germans are quite shocked that the Belgians are resisting. And their, their commanders basically say, you know, we have to do this incredibly fiercely and we will, you know, win the war and we will impose order by fear. And we make them scared Otherwise, they will shoot at us and, and all this sort of thing. So it's quite, it's done quite deliberately, but I don't think it's quite as savage as the sort of British newspaper coverage suggested. But I do think that what then happened, which is all these sort of people, you know, all these writers, the sort of Kiplings and I don't know, HG Wells's and Joseph Conrad's or whatever, venturing into print and saying, Oh, the Germans are just Philistines and barbarians and blood drinking monsters. I think some of that is motivated by, oh, great, now we don't have to worry about them being so clever anymore. Well, Kipling definitely. Kipling was massive. I mean, he, he hated Germans. Some of his short stories yes. are terrible. There's yeah. one with Mary Postgate where the, That's right. um, the, there's a German aviator who is, is dying and she yeah. kind of leaves him to die in the garden yeah. and we're supposed yeah. to... Yeah, really yeah. chilling stuff. And actually, it's often coming from people, I think, who you know, 30 years earlier would have been all about Teutonic Brotherhood. And now they've just sort of turned that on its head. The uh, recessional, the famous poem that, that Kipling wrote, um, of the Jubilee of Queen Victoria, um, saying, you know, lest we forget, lest we forget, yeah. we end up one with Nineveh and Tyre. Nineveh and Tyre. He, 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 yeah. You know, Tyrosi talks about lesser breeds. And, and I think the lesser breeds in that are the Germans. Lesser breeds without the law? No, I don't think they're the Germans. I think they're the, um, they're the colonised peoples. I think there is debate. Is there? I'm not. I'm not au fait that, with Kipling yeah, scholarship. I think. I think there are people who think that, that he may be referring to the Germans there. But anyway, but but Kipling there is voicing a kind of um, a, a, a kind of horror, really, yeah. at, at the at, at Germany as and and it's there that you're starting to get the idea that that because they they come to be called the Huns, yes, who obviously are yeah. actually Hungarians. But I mean, the idea that there is a kind of primal barbarism, it's essentially the kind of the Roman idea. Yes, that, that beyond yeah. the Rhine. Well, people use the word barbarian. Is, they use it yeah, all the time. All is all is savagery and darkness. I mean, it's absolutely it's kind of whole repudiation of that thing that had begun with with Boniface. But then the interesting thing, Tom, is that that disappears so quickly. So that by the nineteen twenties, it's all like you know, um, let's go and conclude some arms treaties with the Germans. Um, they're rebuilding. There's a there's a great sort of don't let's be beastly. I mean, the don't let's be beastly to the Germans is a later phrase. But there's a sense of that in the 1920s and 30s, isn't there? I mean, that's what lies behind a lot of appeasement. That the, maybe we were a bit harsh on the Germans. They're not quite so bad. They're trying to get back on their feet. I'm not sure. I, I, I mean, the, obviously, the, the, um, Weimar Berlin has a kind of hypnotic appeal for, for, yeah. for, for British artists and writers and intellectuals. So I, I think for us in England, we, we see Weimar through the, the, the eyes of, of the people who did that, you know, who, cabaret would be the kind of exemplification of that yeah christopher isherwood type people but but i, but I think um I, I think shadowing the whole time there's the issue of what to do about germany um and underlying that is the assumption that german power is inherently dangerous and that's why britain well, and france maintain their alliance yeah. it's absolutely churchill's view and i think it's even there in in, in appeasement because the it, essentially it's kind of we might you know you, it is maybe we pushed them too far. Maybe we 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 exacted too much out of them. But but I mean, underlying appeasement is also the idea that you have to appease someone because if you don't, 
yeah. they'll hit you. Well, I mean, I think I'm not. I'm not sure about that, but I think we should do a podcast just on appeasement. And actually, I want to tell you one thing we haven't talked about is what the Germans think of Britain, because there's no doubt that lots of Germans still, after the First World War, think of Britain as their natural ally and their natural friend, including Hitler. Yeah. So during the First World War, there had been ton. I mean, the, a lot of Germans had been absolutely appalled and horrified that Britain had entered at all. They'd assumed that Britain would not enter. And then when Britain um, does, they feel betrayed because they feel that their cousin has turned against them, siding with the French. Well, there's the Kaiser's great joke when um, yes. when George V changes um, the, the House of Saxe Coburg to the House of Windsor. And the Kaiser yeah. wittily says, I'm off to see Shakespeare's play, The Merry Wives of Saxe Coburg. <laughs> to be fair, that's quite a good I mean It is a good joke. <laughs> yeah. It the is Kaiser is, joke. the Kaiser did make one good joke. I think yes. we can safely w- say that. Wag. But um but you're right that for Hitler and the Nazis, England was not automatically an obvious enemy. And lots of senior Nazis did think, well, we can do a we can do do a deal with the British and do you know, sort of I mean, Ian Kershaw said this, didn't he, in his, um, when he was talking about how he got into doing the history of the Nazis, that a, a, um, a German guy said to him in the 1970s, we could have divided up the world between us. I think there was quite a lot of sentiment along those lines in the 1930s. Yeah. And, um, Hitler, I mean, he admired, uh, British rule over India. Yeah. And kind of saw that as a, an exemplification of what he wanted. Um, so, yes, <laughs> there were aspects of Britain that even the Nazis admired. I mean, we were never going to not mention the war, so we might as well. Um, I think what's interesting to me is that the the propaganda, the, the British sense of, of Germany is, to my mind, actually not quite as intensely anti-German as it was in the First World War. It's more anti-Nazi. Um, yeah, so, so people, some, what's this, uh, The Life and Times of Colonel Blimp? Yes. Which features an honourable... Prussian figure who who is seen as the best of Germany and Churchill hated it didn't he he wanted it banned he thought that it was kind of basically kind of pro-German propaganda but even Churchill on the other hand Tom um, said for example of Rommel and I think Rommel is a really important actually a really important figure in how British opinion kind of rehabilitated Germany after the war because Rommel is the sort of the 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 paradigm of the good german in british eyes and even during the war churchill said of rommel he's a very great general and a noble antagonist or something like this so you know there was always this sense which i don't think really exists in the first world war that there was another germany that the nazis had suppressed as it were the real germany and there was another germany that was noble and you know upstanding and virtuous and a sort of decent enemy and that that had somehow been lost which which is then terribly important when the war is over and Britain yeah. is one of the four occupying powers and obviously plays a, a crucial role in deciding what will happen to Germany after the war. Yes. And actually, I mean, the- British, British policy after the, after the war seems to me an incredible bright spot in Anglo-German relations. Well, it's a British officer who rebuilds Volkswagen, for example. Yes, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and Britain plays a kind of crucial role in in re-establishing German democracy and re-establishing German industry um, and actually kind of learning from problems that Britain has and ensuring that Germany doesn't have them. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, don't forget there were American policymakers who said the the answer to this after two world wars is to break up Germany forever, to break it up, destroy its industry and just turn it into this sort of... Kind of forest. Yeah, into basically Switzerland, into lots of little Switzerlands so that it can never again... Uh, menace Europe. And and I think one reason for not doing that was by this point, fear of Germany had been overtaken by fear of Russia. And having a strong Germany was seen as an important bulwark against the Soviet Union. Yeah. So so obviously, um, going into um, 50s, 60s, 70s, there are so many ambivalences there. But yeah. I guess you are as well qualified to trace as anyone because you've written about them. Oh, you're very kind, Tom. That's nice. Um, uh, I think... Uh, Yes, I think I think the most interesting. I mean, obviously, there are memories of the war. There are people who won't buy German cars. There is, and you see that reflected in Dad's army, and obviously, most famously in Fawlty Towers. That don't mention the war. But the, the but Fawlty Towers, the, the joke is against Basil Fawlty. Well, that's it's exactly not against the, thing. the Germans, is it? So Basil, there are lots of people like Basil, but you're right. The Germans are, are progressive, decent, kindly people who come to stay at the hotel and are shocked by Basil's conduct. And certainly by the seventies, I think. West Germany, in British eyes, was the exemplar of sort of European modernity. 
So there are tons of articles in the British newspapers in the sort of mid-70s saying German labor relations, German factories, German education system. We should learn from them. Germany is the perfect kind of modern country. You know, there are, there are all these Helmut Schmidt. Um, the social democratic leader of Germany in the 1970s is brought over to address the Labour Party conference to basically say, you know, we support you in your attempts to stop so many strikes and inflation and so on. And there is this absolute sense, you know, Germany is the, is the future and we should be yeah. more like Germany. And I think that, that, that we still have that. I mean, I think that's still quite an important strain within British public opinion. Yes, I think certainly in, in what you would call um, slightly progressive opinion. But I think even even you know even even the um, uh, two world wars and, and one world cup, it's it's a bit it, it's slightly embarrassing because you know I mean, Germans won won lots of world cups. Yeah, they won lots yeah. of world cups, and and we for, for us you know um, this fixture is is massive. But for them, it's actually not. For, for yeah. them, it isn't. For, yeah. you know, we're, we're in a way much more obsessed by by German success than you know. I mean, we, we barely intrude on them. I think you're absolutely right. I maybe think we you're right. don't. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's not entirely true. But I think that we are more obsessed by Germany as an opponent than the Germans are by us. I think that's in right. footballing terms. I also think, uh, and also I think in political terms actually. And I think the key moment is is not going out to the Germans on penalties in Euro '96. It's going out to the Germans on penalties in 1990. And it's not just that. I don't mean that sort of facetiously just as a footballing point, but obviously it's at that point the German unification is on the agenda. And Mrs. Thatcher, who had been a great champion of West Germany, actually, and had, had actually in the late 70s, early 80s, had explicitly said West Germany is a model for Britain to follow. She completely changes her tune at the end of the 80s, early 90s, because she is the great opponent of German unification, because she basically recognises... I mean, not, not, she's not wrong. She recognizes that a united Germany will be the powerhouse of Europe and she doesn't like it and she tries and, to stop it and she fails. And Chancellor Cole invites her over, doesn't he? For oh, gosh, his yes. hometown and treats yeah, him to, treats her to, to traditional local delicacies and well, things. He takes that, her, he, think, it, it, it's actually more moving than that. I mean, Chancellor Cole, who is, I mean, in Britain is seen as a comic figure, but elsewhere, I think, is seen as a genuinely sort of. Well, literally a giant. Literally a giant, exactly. <laughs> he, he, he has this sort of buried romantic side and he wants to, he takes her around and he sort of shows her the sights and he wants to show her the soul of Germany and how much Germany has suffered and how it has rebuilt and this sort of, this vision that he has. And all she can say when she gets back is, oh my God, that man is so German. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the thing is though, Tom, she's kind of speaking for the nation, isn't she? I mean, that's what a lot of British people think. Well, there was, and she had to sack, is it Nicholas Ridley, who was her, yeah. I mean, kind of a very close political ally. He was very employment close. secretary or something. And, and he wrote an article in the spectator saying that the common market, whatever it was then, it's a German plot to take over Europe. It's a German racket. A German racket to take over Europe. German racket. That's a very good go. And, uh, and uh, um, I guess, I mean, I guess that that was, that was kind of a motivating factor in the Brexit campaign, perhaps. I mean, I think that's still kind of slight. Well, I think once Germany and element France, there. I mean, so much of this in this discussion, France has been there and France is the antagonist and, and a shared suspicion of France has allowed Germans and Britons to unite. Once France and Germany, as it were, buried the hatchet in, in, a, in a massive way in the sort of 50s and 60s and became the twin pillars of the European Union, then suddenly Britain was on the outside. And I think that that obviously played a huge part in the Brexit campaign, the sense that there's a Franco-German alliance, which had yeah. never really existed before. But also that the Franco-German alliance had been there from the beginning. And so therefore, Britain was always having to adjust to Franco-German norms Yes, and 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 the cost of doing that proved proved too high. With, with yeah, the I mean, I think, that we know absolutely. Um, I think that's. Um, but I, but having said all that, I think I mean I I think that um, for all the talk of um, you know Anglo-German hostility that uh, this the the football match will will generate, um, you know the very fact it's inspired us to do this podcast, I do think that um, actually. Certainly in England, there is a huge admiration for Germany. I, I, yeah, and yeah, I, that's true. I, I think that's something that, you, you know, we saw through the 90s, 
And I don't think anything has happened since then to change it. I think there's a sort of respect for Germany, isn't there? There's a deep respect for Germany for the way they've 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 dealt with the traumas of the 20th century, um, for lots of things working. I mean, the one th- they don't get everything right. They've got this dreadful airport in Berlin, which is the, mm. which they've been building for about the last three centuries. And I think it's only well, that's a, but that's or... a kind of that's an entertaining throwback to to the Germany of the 1820s. <laughs> yes, I guess so. Sort of shambolic <laughs> so, and fragmented. Yes. Um, yes, but you're right. I think I think uh, speaking purely for myself, I think Germany is an amazing country. I love German culture, and I think to go to a country that works as well um, is tremendous. And as much as the Germans beat themselves up, or we like to beat up the Germans, I think um, I think they're. Uh, I'm a great Teutonic Brotherhood man. I mean, I'm pure Victorian Anglo-Saxon fraternity and, and all that. I really go in for that. Well, I think I think in, I mean I do think another thing that that has. Um, Germany is inherited from, you know, the 18, early 19th century is this kind of slight sense of moral seriousness, which, yes. which we tend to find risible. We, 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 we're, <laughs> yeah, we're, that's true. That is very we're, true. We're, we're kind of... But they mean what we, they we, say. We, we can't cope they? with... They yes, mean what they, they say what they, they mean. Do, they, they do. They do. And, um, I, and I think it's impossible not to admire that from our had to, islanders. We titter and giggle our way into the sea. We have some, my wife had a German student and they, she stayed in touch with her and she and her husband, they're both teachers. They often come to visit us. And um, he, uh, the last time they came to visit us at the end of the evening, I said, coffee. And he said, I know you all appreciate plain speaking here in England. I would like a bottle of red wine, <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was um, admirably, yeah, very Teutonic behavior. But, but, but uh, Dominic, we, we are here descending into the worst kinds of national stereotyping. And I think before we disgrace ourselves. <laughs> yeah. Any further, we should uh, we should blow the whistle on this um, this romp through the centuries. And, and you, you, I gather, won't be watching the big match because you've got to go to your, your son's. I've got to go and see a, a school play. Day. Yeah, pirates versus mermaids. Are you, I mean, I'm I'm absolutely pumped. I'm pumped. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to record the game, not talk to any parents at the like the lady lads. You know, yeah, exactly. And try to watch it afterwards. I'm very excited about it. I'm so looking forward to phoning you up, texting you. Do not. I do not. Yeah. Uh, if anyone out there has uh, <laughs> would like to tweet Dominic or text him the result, much merriment will follow. Uh, anyway, Dominic, thanks ever so much. Um, I hope you managed not to uh, find out the result and to watch it live. Um, yeah. as it were uh, thanks very much for listening um, enjoy the football if you're watching the football uh, we will be back soon with yet more bye 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 auf Wiedersehen thanks for listening to The Rest is History for bonus episodes early access ad free listening and access to our chat community please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.